Welcome to a brand new episode of Seize the Moment podcast. And today we have a very special guest. We have Dr. Sarah Manning-Peskin. She's an assistant professor of clinical neurology at the University of Pennsylvania. She's part of both the Penn Memory Center and the Penn Frontotemporal Dementia Center. Her writing has appeared in the New York Times, Boston Globe Magazine, and the Philadelphia Inquirer. And her new book, out now, is called A Molecule Away from Madness. Welcome, Sarah. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. And I want to say before we begin that Sarah's book is legit, one of my favorite, if not the favorite book I've read in 2022. Uh, so I just, first of all, it's just, I want to say before we even start, just, it's so interesting. Um, it's so wonderful how you tied in together medical history, case studies, and then even some background information, which was really nice. And I mean, it's all interwoven or kind of woven together into a story that's so fascinating for so many different ends. And just, I mean, honestly, thank you for writing it. It just was a breeze to read through, which was really nice because a lot of times like we try through especially academic books and this one was just like literally i knocked it out in a couple of days oh thanks so much it was supposed to be a fast read it was a slow write but a fast read hopefully <laughs> yeah absolutely okay so i want to read a passage before we start so sarah writes the life expectancy of an alzheimer's disease patient has changed little since the condition was discovered more than a century ago aside from improved diagnostic tools and medications that slightly decrease the severity of symptoms the unfolding of horrors for those with alzheimer's disease is roughly the same as it was when alois Alzheimer met Auguste Deter in 1901. Likewise, Huntington's disease still electrifies limbs and muddles minds with the same veracity as before. Uh, Crutzfield Jacobs disease continues to quickly kill everyone it afflicts without exception. But the way we explore cognitive afflictions has begun to change. We know more about the mutants, rebels, invaders, and evaders of the mind than ever before. A century ago, every condition discussed in this book was untreatable. Today, most of the afflictions are preventable. Several are even curable. The field of cognitive neuro neurology has taken its first steps along the path toward molecular specificity. Cognitive calamities are now understood as molecular problems that require molecular solutions. Okay, love that passage. And so Sarah, the first question I'm going to have, like, what do we mean by when we talk about mutants, rebels, evaders, and evaders, right? Because you differentiate molecules. And um, how is it that these tiny substances have so many different roles? Yeah, so it's a great question. So we're all made of tons and tons of molecules. So that's, this is really what, what makes up our bodies. Um, and when I was thinking about different diseases where there's a single molecule that causes them, I realized they mostly fell into one of four categories. So the way I describe them as either they were caused by mutants, which are pieces of DNA that have a mutation. And that's something like Huntington's disease. Uh, or they're caused by what I called rebels. These are proteins that are meant to help us, but instead they uh, target our brains. And or they're caused by small molecules. And so yeah, DNA and proteins are really giant molecules. But then we have these small molecules, something like water is a small molecule. It's just much, much, much smaller than DNA and proteins. And these small molecules, either they cause us problems because they're present and they shouldn't be there. That's something like a medication that you take that has a, a cognitive side effect. Or some of these small molecules are supposed to be there, but they're absent or they're not enough of it. And that's what causes us a problem. And that's something like a vitamin. Yeah, wow. And then so it's so interesting to think that like somewhere down the line, you know, when we inherit DNA, we think, okay, so this is sort of who we are, right? It was we kind of grow up, right? It's sort of like what we're born with. It seems like that's our destiny going forward. But it's interesting how DNA is altered in the kind of midst of one's life. And we don't really know that much about how that happens. Can you talk a little bit about that? 
Yeah, so it's interesting. It's something that I actually didn't, that part I didn't cover that much in the book is the study of epigenetics. And there's this idea, you know, we grow up thinking of DNA as something that's fixed. It's the instruction book for creating us. And then the more we learn about it, the more we learn that uh, there's actually more to it than that. Um, And there is actually some dynamic nature of of DNA, uh, both in the way it's folded and unfolded, uh, and also uh, the way it's modified. And it's not really as fixed as you would think. And then even beyond that, uh, you may have DNA that's you're not changing, but your your body actually uses DNA as the directions for creating, ultimately creating proteins. And those proteins can actually fold and misfold in ways that 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 uh, could hijack the brain. Well, yeah. And so can you talk about a little bit about some of these sort of environmental or even psychological effects effects that can affect DNA and proteins? So the um, so the, one of the stories I tell about um, about a protein that that affects psychology or affects the brain uh, is the story of a, a young woman who grew up in sort of adverse circumstances and really excelled academically. Ultimately, went to a elite university. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, no, no. Is that is that the story about Lauren uh, that you're referring exactly. to? Exactly. Oh, exactly. Yeah, so this was yeah. the Lauren Kane story. So um, she basically, she goes to this elite university, does very well, comes home. She wants to become a writer. And so she starts working on putting together a portfolio to, uh, to apply to graduate school. And she starts watching The Walking Dead. This was back in, I think it was in 2016. And The Walking Dead was, was all the rage and everyone was watching it. And she starts binge watching it sort of episode after episode. And she wakes up one morning confused so she keeps asking her mom the same question over and over again and at first her mom thinks you know maybe she's just tired or something Uh, but it eventually becomes really unusual for her and she starts getting feverish and she has difficulty walking and her mom takes her to the emergency room and in the emergency room she actually becomes acutely psychotic and she starts to think that the people around her are are actually characters from the walking dead and she essentially thinks that she's living in the tv show And one of the security guards who actually was called to her room to try to uh, keep her safe is the one who actually makes the connection between what she's saying and the TV show. And that's how they realize that she's literally living in this post-apocalyptic TV show. And uh, she gets admitted to the hospital. No one can figure out what's wrong with her. And ultimately her, her mom is the one who actually figures out the problem. She reads about this condition that causes young women to become acutely psychotic. And uh, it's caused by a protein that normally is supposed to help us. It's, a, uh, it's actually an antibody. So normally it's made to help us fight off invaders. And instead it actually targets uh, some, a molecule that's in the brain. And that's what caused her symptoms. And ultimately they actually were able to treat her and, uh, and she was essentially cured. Yeah, and that was so interesting that her mom had to fight on her, for her on her behalf. It's like it's yeah, yeah no, no, no. Uh, just to tag that a little bit. I mean, also, I believe it was mentioned uh, in the book that a uh, security guard was close. He was very, very close to sort of identifying what what could have been up with her. He's like, did she ever take any PCP? Yeah, you know, because the uh, if I'm if I remember correctly, the um, the chemicals that are produced from uh, PCP are s- similar to um what that antibody that's produced as well, correct? Yeah, exactly. So they work the same way. They both attack something called the NMDA receptor. So the same mechanism. So it's sort of, if you think about if you do PCP, then, you know, you may have have symptoms for a short time and then the drug wears off and you go back to normal. For Lauren Kane, it was almost like her body was sort of constantly producing something that worked like PCP. So it was like she was hooked up to a drip of PCP. 
Yeah, wow. Yeah, and just going into how, how the fact that her mom had to fight for, again, advocate for her. It's so interesting how that happens because, you know, I know when I kind of go to the doctor, I sort of automatically give over my authority to that person thinking like, you know, what do I do? I've never been to medical school. But it's so interesting that sometimes literally, and, you know, we kind of on our culture, our culture is really big on, you know, you know, don't think that just because you went to WebMD or whatever it is, right, whatever kind of clinical website, that all of a sudden you have better credentials than the doctor. But in this particular case, the mom was actually right, which is interesting because in the rare, you know, sometimes you don't get this a lot, but in the rare few times that you do get this, it's actually pretty incredible. And she really did seem like save her life. 100%. I don't, you know, uh, this is a condition that if you don't treat, it's not like it gets better on its own. So I think her mom probably did save her life. And I have to say, after I talked with her mom, um, it made me realize actually as a as a physician, when I see patients and they bring up these, you know, could it be this, could it be that? Yeah, I actually think about it a little bit differently than I used to. And I can tell you in the past year, I've had two patients where I didn't know what was going on and a family member brought something up. And uh, in one case, the family member brought it up and I, you know, looked it up and read more. And it turns out that was hundred percent the diagnosis and we treated the patient and he's much better, but I wouldn't have figured it out myself. And in another case, a family member more recently, you know, brought up a possible diagnosis. I said, I really don't think that's what it is. I did all the testing that I wanted to do, couldn't figure it out, went back. And it turned out the family member, I think was right. We're still figuring it out. But, um, but I think this patient's sister actually correctly diagnosed her even after I resisted. And I think I'm so glad that she brought it up again. Yeah, so I really think this does happen. Yeah, well, and, and that antibody that her that she was producing, uh, that was as a result of an ovarian tumor, I believe, uh, correct? Exactly. So yeah. what um, and this is a connection that we now know about. So when people have this condition, about 50 percent of them um, will actually have a, a tumor on their ovary. And the tumor itself is not bothersome. It, it's not that big. Uh, often, particularly in this case, the tumor was small. It wasn't actually causing any direct symptoms uh, to Lauren Cage, the character in the book. And, but her body had actually, in trying to fight the tumor, uh, the cells on the tumor actually had a receptor uh, or they, they uh, had essentially the cells in the tumor sort of look like brain cells. And so her body created antibodies to attack the tumor, but instead those antibodies actually also caused her brain cells to malfunction. Yeah, it's so interesting how that works, because you would think that one part of the body, especially that distant, right, wouldn't necessarily affect the other, but it really goes to show how like, it's just one holistic system, that essentially, in some ways, right, you know, smaller, larger, obviously, somewhere in the middle, uh, the body, if you affect one part of it, it's going to affect the rest of it. Yeah, the, so these types of tumor, these types of ovarian tumors are called teratomas, and they're famous for being able to mimic other parts of the body. It's sort of a wild, um, it's a wild feature of them. Yeah, wow. Yeah. And then it's like when we're thinking about these, uh, like when you go into the medical history of all of these different diagnoses and obviously diseases, it's so interesting how it's sort of like you're getting a little bit more nuanced as you get along, right? We start out kind of like with mental health. We start out with these crude definitions. And that's what I was thinking about when I was reading the book, a lot about mental health history, because obviously I'm a, I'm a therapist. So a lot of what where I come from in terms of my background is sort of, you know, the history of mental illness as opposed to neurological illness. Um, and so I often think about how like when we started off with medical diagnosis, 
diagnoses, it was essentially manic depression, uh, schizophrenia slash psychosis. And then we also had neurosis, right? We had like nothing else. We had like these three diagnoses and everybody was sort of lumped into these different piles. But then as you kind of develop these systems, like what we're talking about tools, uh, diagnostic tools included uh, in terms of like interviews, we always find that there are like these little bit of like these tiny distinctions that sometimes aren't so tiny, but that they matter. And so Sarah, can you talk a little bit about how the diagnoses evolved over the years? Yeah, so it's a great question. Actually, I have to say of the researchers that I talk about in the book, most of them were what were called neuropsychiatrists because this used right. to be, the field used to be all together. And in some ways more and more we find that it, it should still be together. It's sort of an artificial boundary that we've created between neurology and psychiatry. And there's lots of conditions that are very much at the seams of it. I can tell you in my own practice in cognitive neurology, I actually prescribe far more psychiatric medications than I do, you know, wow. neurologic ones. Um, and uh, a lot of, the, so in looking at the history, a lot of the diseases that I talk about in the book uh, are conditions that were discovered by scientists in the, the late 1800s and early 1900s in, in Europe. And that was sort of the heyday of the study of neuroanatomy. Um, and so, so, I guess one of the big stories we talk about is that, you know, the discovery of neurotransmitters. So it used to be thought that essentially the nervous system was just a giant blob, essentially. So uh, the, we knew that the rest of the body was made of cells, but people thought that the nervous system was made of just a giant single cell, essentially, or a single thing. And it makes sense because if your brain has to control your toe, wouldn't it be easier if they were basically just connected? But there was the scientist Santiago Ramón y Cajal in Spain in the, uh, in the 1800s. And uh, he basically realized that that was not the case and that, that the, the prevailing theory was wrong. And he was an unusual guy and sort of a, a surprising character to revolutionize neurology. He was a very much a rebel. He was born to this really domineering anatomist and didn't want to do what his, what his dad did. And ended up, he got really interested in explosives and he blew up a neighbor's property, ended up in jail. His dad got fed up with it and said, yeah, you have to do an apprenticeship with a shoemaker. And Ramon y Cajal was so bored out of his mind doing this apprenticeship with a shoemaker that he finally turned back to his dad and said, okay, I'll do some, you know, some biology with you. And uh, so he starts going to cemeteries and going to graveyards, taking bones with his dad that they go back and study. And then he ultimately gets interested in medicine, becomes a scientist and starts studying neurology. And he looks at a brain under a microscope at one point and realizes that this whole idea that the nervous system is a giant blob is wrong. And there are individual cells and this is what we call neurons. Um, and he realizes that this is a enormous discovery but he doesn't know how to get the word out. And so he uh, writes up his results and he sends it all over Europe and he pays tons of money to print up the results and to mail it. And there's, there's these sort of wild stories of how much he spent uh, where some accounts say that he, he spent so much that he couldn't afford a nanny. So his wife's now stuck taking care of the kids all by herself. Some accounts say that he couldn't afford curtains, but he really goes all out and he gets no response at all. And he starts to feel like maybe people think he's a fraud. He wonders whether maybe the issue was that he wrote up his results in Spanish and people don't speak Spanish. So he ultimately takes his slides and his microscope, goes to this conference in Germany and literally sets up a booth. And people stop by his booth, look at his slides and slowly they become convinced that the nervous system is made of individual cells and it's not one giant blob. Um, and that's how we know that there are neurons. And it, it, he won a Nobel prize not long after that 
but it's only because he literally packed his slides up and took them across Europe to show people because they didn't believe him or they didn't really pay attention when he sent out these, these mailings. Um, so some of these wild stories. And, um, and in every disease, or most of the diseases that I talk about in the book, there are these stories of these scientists who discovered these things that we now know were so important, but at the time they really were rejected. Oftentimes they were, were criticized. And there's this, there's sort of the saying goes in medical school that, you know, 50% of what you learn in medical school is wrong, but the problem is we don't know what half. And, uh, and it's very much sort of true. We, I feel like when I reread the book, uh, I think, you know, how did it take us so long to figure out that these people were brilliant and that they were so right? And on the other hand, those discoveries are probably out right now and we haven't picked them up. It's only going to be in 20 years that we look back at 2022 and say, wow, how did we have no idea that that was important? Yeah, I, my God, man. And yeah, the stories, like literally the, the stories of these scientists was just incredibly impressive. Um, how do you think they did it? Like if we had to kind of try to guess, right? How do you think that they actually sort of fought back against public opinion? And then even against some of the haters, right? Some of these people who are just pretty, you know, kind of insulting their intelligence and assaulting their credibility. How do you think they did it? It's a good question. A lot of them, I think they were quite persevering because it took them, most of them, it took years. Mm -hmm. Um. But I also think it was a different culture that there wasn't here. Um, nowadays, if you publish something, it's available across the world in two seconds. Mm -hmm. In those days, I think there was always this sense of, um, you know, you discover something and there was such a huge lag time between when you discover something and when you put it out and when you figure out that people don't like it or they like it. And in the meantime, I think they're developing other projects. Um, so I think the structure of science was just different back then. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, so it, for a person to be able to travel to another country, just, I mean, I guess it wasn't just a hunch. I was going to say that, but definitely not. I mean, it was definitely experimental evidence, but it's like, but just to, because I know when people challenge me, I start to really self doubt and I start to wonder, okay, maybe my reality is off. Right. But here's this guy who literally went across the world just to present a theory that pretty much at that time, almost nobody accepted. Yeah. It, it really takes a sense of like willing to take risks. Um, and I think that's true of all the scientists in the book. They very much were willing to, I mean, some of them literally did put their lives on the line for these things. Uh, one of the stories is about a scientist who was studying a disease called pellagra and everyone thought it was an infectious disease and he didn't think it was infectious. And to prove it, he literally took uh, samples of blood from patients who had this disease and injected it into himself. Part of the disease causes, it causes a rash and he would take flakes of skin from these people who had this rash and mix it with stool and urine and eat it. He really essentially did things that we'd never, you would never, you know, do now. Um, but he, he really took a risk for what he believed in. Yeah. And just to be clear on that, right, this guy not only did this once, he did this multiple times. And then I think his wife did the same thing too, right? So can you tell us what, what was the process exactly? So basically, so it's about this disease, pellagra, and it's, uh, pellagra causes, you could sort of think of it as the three Ds. It's a dementia, dermatitis, so a rash, and diarrhea. And some people call it the four Ds because it also causes death in a, many, a, lot of, a large proportion of cases. And it used to be people think that the disease only existed uh, in Europe, often mostly in Italy. But then in the early 1900s, people started seeing cases of pellagra in the U.S., mostly in the southeastern U.S., in, in Georgia and Alabama. And the disease becomes more and more common over the course of just a few years. And it, it mostly affects impoverished people. And the dominant theory was that it was caused by an infection transmitted by flies. And that sort of felt good to people because you could say, well, 
you know, it, it's these poor people who have terrible sanitation and it's their fault that they have the disease. But the disease seems to be getting more and more common. It's affecting more and more people. Newspapers all around the country start talking about it, it, the disease is causing panic. They're worried about this killer. And the Surgeon General of the US eventually calls on this guy, Joseph Goldberger, to solve the problem of pellagra and to figure out what's causing it and how do we treat it. And Goldberger, uh, he actually, he had already taken some risks with his own life before as part of other projects. He was, he was a public health officer. And as part of other projects, he'd gotten, uh, he, he'd contracted typhus and typhoid and yellow fever all on the job. And, uh, but knowingly. he but knowing, oh, right. Always knowingly, right, right. <laughs> Incredible. Um, yeah, there's there's these wild stories about him. Yeah, I think it was, yeah, but I can't remember if it was scabies or something, but there's, a, there's a, he, he literally really uh, studied some of the most sort of um, gruesome diseases and very much realized that there was a, a risk of death with essentially every project that he took on. And he decides he's going to take on pellagra. And he starts off at the library, which is where he always starts. And he reads about these conferences that people have done on pellagra. And he really quickly picks up this detail that no one's pointed out that much before, which is that all of these pellagra patients are cared for at these institutions where the caregivers basically live there. And so if they're all being exposed to the same flies, you'd expect the caregivers to come down with pellagra also, but they don't. So by and large, in location after location, people who care for patients with pellagra don't come down with the disease. And so Goldberger very quickly is convinced that it's not an infectious disease. And he starts thinking that it's caused by a problem in the diet, that people with pellagra are deficient in something in the diet. He first thinks that it's a problem with not enough protein. Um, but he, uh, nobody wants to believe him because the optics are really different. So he, if it's an infectious disease, you're saying it's poor people's fault and they have bad sanitation and that's why they have disease. If it's a deficiency in the diet, then suddenly we're saying, actually, we're, the country is essentially starving its own people, which looks much worse. And uh, the other problem is if the solution is better diet, then you're asking the government to supplement you know, good food for these people, which is expensive. And, uh, and they're not powerful people. And so no one wants to do it. But Goldberger is convinced that this is the case. And uh, so he eventually goes through a series of experiments, one of which is this one where he tries to essentially catch pellagra. And he does all those crazy, uh, he does sort of uh, this whole set of experiments. Uh, and it, a bunch of colleagues also volunteer to, to get exposed. And about six months later, he writes up this kind of comical result where he says, you know, considering the amount of filth that we took in, it's pretty amazing that all we had was a bunch of diarrhea. And uh, it's kind of a wild, a wild sentence. And including and, poop, uh, including poop. He <laughs> ate poop pills, like literally right. poop pills. Yeah. <laughs> and... Um, and so, uh, but eventually he actually, he finally figures out that pellagra is caused by a deficiency in a B vitamin, but he never really puts his finger on which B vitamin it is. And he ultimately dies of, uh, of kidney cancer before they figure it out. He gets nominated for a Nobel prize four times in his life, but he never, never wins it. And uh, it's only after he dies a few years later that someone realizes the disease is caused by a deficiency in vitamin B3, which we, it used to be called nicotinic acid, but people thought that uh, it sounded too much like nicotine. And so they changed the name and now it's niacin. So that's the history of niacin. Yeah, I love that. And so I'm, yeah. It, no, it's, it's it's crazy how deficiencies in, in vitamins can lead to right. certain diseases or even how a certain diet maybe could affect your health. Like, for example, um, being a pescatarian, right? Uh, 
could lead to mate, perhaps depending on what kind of fish you're taking in right. uh, or where you got your fish could lead to mercury poisoning. It's, it's, it's interesting. Yeah. Or you, mercury toxicity. What's really. so scary about that is that because I think that, and I think this is a very Western kind of dualistic perspective or view. I think that a lot of us think of consciousness as being separated from the body. So when we think of anything affecting our psyches, I think it scares the hell out of us. So like we had on a uh, philosopher, Richard Pettigrew on, and we had a, uh, so the show was about the concept of self. And so we talked about like, why is it that people are so afraid of changing, right? Like, why is it that when we think of the broad sort of perspective of who we are, let's say from childhood to adulthood, and even obviously to death, right? Why is it that we're so terrified of losing parts of ourselves? And it's really, I think it's, and I mean, he obviously, I think it's really his perspective, not necessarily mine, but he would agree that we essentially have this view that, okay, the mind is sort of pure and it's untainted for our lives, right? And somewhere as we move on, it's kind of unaffected, even if let's say, you know, we have maybe some sort of disease or whatever, that doesn't really affect the soul, right? Or kind of consciousness, right? And then we, we sort of move on, maybe in an afterlife of sorts, the soul, this pure kind of free will, right? It moves on. But it's so scary to view and read some of these stories and think about like, no, your psyche is actually just like your body, right? It's a part of it. And it's just as affected by the environment. And it's just as sort of pushed around like a ship on the tumultuous sea, just like your body is. And so I think for a lot of people, it, it's really just frightening to read about these things it's frightening to hear about them and then so sarah and writing the story uh what was it like for you because i'm assuming that there was some anxiety and kind of i mean obviously you do this for a living but there had to have also been some anxiety in writing about this and sort of thinking about this very deeply because again it's like it's not just losing a part of our bodies even though bodies are part of ourselves but it's really like losing a part of your inner essence mm. yeah i think that's a, that's a very articulate way to um to put it and that in my day job, that's really, uh, that, that's a lot of the patients that I see. Um, one of the places that I work is called the, the frontotemporal dementia. And frontotemporal dementia is this really wild um, condition that causes people to essentially have a, a new personality. Um, wow. So it, it will cause people to be disinhibited. They'll go up to strangers. In the pandemic, we've had people, you know, they come in and they pull people's masks down and they, uh, they look at tons of pornography. They have affairs. They uh, will take up their clothes in inappropriate places. They'll gamble away all of their money. They'll gamble away all of their savings and their partner's savings. Uh, so they have these wild behaviors that are completely different from their normal personality. And it often takes a really long time for people to end up in our clinic because they end up first in, in their, they see therapists, they go to couples therapy, but they don't have enough insight to figure out what's going on. They try ADD medications. And, um, and, and I think it's really just a, um, a striking experience for families to see a loved one essentially become a different person and a person they, they wouldn't have liked otherwise. So it's not just they're becoming, you know, they used to be introverted and now they're extroverted. It's that they're doing things that are totally inappropriate. Um, and seeing family members try to deal with that both before the diagnosis and then sort of their, their relief with the diagnosis of saying, you know, oh, it's not just that the person's a bad person. Um, it's that they have an actual defined, uh, you know, classifiable disease. And um, so I, I, you're exactly right that there's, I think there is this idea of, personality uh, being personality and sort of identity being this sort of central unchanging part of our being and most of what I do is actually seeing people who have lost their personality right right and I mean this is going to probably be a difficult question to answer and obviously it's okay if you can't I think it's above all of our pay grades uh, but just to think about like, like so how is it that I, I mean again 
super difficult question, but I guess I wonder, right? Because when we think about psychiatric diagnoses, I mean, they're pretty much neurological too, to some extent, even though, yes, obviously there's no particular test to indicate them or biological test to indicate them. But it's, it's sort of like, it's interesting that on the one hand, we would excuse a neurological diagnosis, but then we wouldn't necessarily excuse a psychological one. There, there is, that is exactly right. And we, I can't tell you how many people come into our office um, and people, the partner says, you know, if you tell me this is Alzheimer's disease, I'll forgive him. But if you don't tell me that, then, you know, I'm still angry at my partner. Mm -hmm. um, that that dynamic is so, I think that's very perceptive of you. And that's so spot on. And, uh, and it's a problem. Um, it's a problem. There's this idea that if it's psychiatric, then it's the person's fault. And if it's neurologic, then, oh, you know, then we, we're, we feel so badly. And, um, and, and it's really a problem. Yeah. And I'm curious, how do you have conversations with people like who ask those questions or who, who say something like, well, you know, if it's Alzheimer's, I'll forgive it. But if not, I don't think I could do that. Like, do you feel like, I mean, I guess, first of all, do you feel like that's your responsibility to have that conversation? And if it is, what would you say to someone? It's interesting. What do I do when people say that? I think I, I think, I suppose that it, it matters what it turns out to be, because if it does turn out to be Alzheimer's disease, then I guess I don't go out of my way to try to change their perspective on the stigma, because the goal is more really to help them adapt to this new diagnosis. Um, and if it turns out to not be neurodegenerative, then oftentimes it's trying to point them in a direction that, you know, how do we cure it? So if we think it's not, this is not something neurodegenerative, you know, is this related to depression or bipolar disorder or something else? And um, then the goal is really to say that, you know, these diseases are common and to normalize these conditions um, and to say that just because it's not neurodegenerative doesn't mean it doesn't require treatment. Uh, and that's sort of, a, I think, a big, um, a big dividing line. Yeah. And do you think that we're any closer to seeing any sort of neurological or bio biological markers of mental illness? It's interesting. I, was, I have to say, I'm not as up on that literature as I um, as I should be. There certainly are biological markers, um, but I have no idea, you know, what's been the pace of progress with it. I probably should know more. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I've read popular articles about it. So from what I hear is that, well, again, this is just, these are not, you know, journals, uh, but so from what I read, so it seems like what they're looking for is they're looking to differentiate different types of depression, particularly. And so they're looking to see which sort of, um, which forms of depression are particularly susceptible and treatable by psychotherapy, which ones are pharmacologically susceptible or kind of open, and then which ones require both. Right. So it's so interesting because often we think of depression as like this sort of crude, uh, crude kind of cluster of symptoms, but it seems like what they're thinking is now, not only is it that there are different forms of depression, just in terms of the symptoms, because obviously there are like eight symptoms or something, and you could only meet the criteria for four, and you know, do you kind of mix and match, but then also there could be different, um, uh, different psychological, not psychological, different neurological markers for it as well. I mean, I don't, I'm not up on the testing, so I don't know what that could look like. So that, that's based on the, uh, Defi deficiency of certain neurotransmitters, right? Like, uh, well, that's, yeah, that's always been right. Right. So uh, the, the, what, what is the, the, the debate is whether uh, does it start out as a deficiency or is it that the feedback between the person's thoughts? And so their... interestingly, it's even deeper than that. They're saying that they're able to, at least they're coming closer to from, again, my uh, vague recollection, is they're able to even spot sort of specific areas of the brain, right? We're not even talking about like areas that aren't producing dopamine per se, which is, you know, that's kind of like the clinical syndrome biologically. Mm -hmm. But also what they're thinking is that there are certain areas of the brain that they could pinpoint that are different than different people with depression. So I don't know how, wow. yeah, because I'm assuming this is all aggregates. 
So I'm not really sure about how that's going to work. But it's so interesting because what you write about in your book is how we're getting closer to differentiating between, again, going back to nuance, how we're getting closer to differentiating within, between different types of neurological disorders. So when you talk about like, let's say dementia and Alzheimer's, we often like as a lay public, we think about it as one particular thing, right? So when we see somebody present with dementia, or again, Alzheimer's, we're like, oh, that's like, looks like the same thing. The person presents, you know, in the same way. But you actually say that that's wrong. Can you tell us a little bit about that and the different forms of it? Yeah, so this is a question, this is probably the most common question that we get in our clinic is what's the difference between dementia and Alzheimer's disease? Right. And it turns out they're actually, they describe different things. So the first question that we ask when we see someone is, what does it look like when they move about the real world? And there are sort of, in most cases, there's sort of three options. There's normal, there's what's called mild cognitive impairment. What that means is someone's having difficulty in the real world. Maybe things are a little bit slower. They're making some errors, uh, but they're doing everything that you used to do. So they're, they're driving, they're grocery shopping, they're cooking, but maybe they get lost once or twice or they leave uh, ingredients out of a few recipes. Um, and we can pick up abnormalities on our testing. That's mild cognitive impairment. And then a step beyond that is dementia. And what dementia means is there are independent activities of daily living, like uh, driving, grocery shopping, cooking, that a person cannot do because of memory and thinking difficulties. And it's usually in the context of something neurodegenerative, something that's progressive. So dementia really is a description of what does it look like when a person moves about the real world? Alzheimer's disease is actually a description of what's going on under a microscope. Uh, so going, going back to Dr. Alzheimer's in the early 1900s, basically he was a, uh, he was a German neuropsychiatrist. This is that uh, sort of combined title. And he had uh, he'd actually studied the cellular life of earwax and he'd gotten pretty well known in, um, in microscopy. And he also was this sort of boisterous guy. He'd gotten a, a citation for disturbing the peace. And he was working at this asylum in Frankfurt, and he met this woman named August Dieter. And Dieter was this housewife uh, who had become kind of confused in her 40s. She would leave uh, ingredients out of recipes. She started getting lost around the neighborhood. She would hide things around the house, and then she couldn't remember where she put them, and she'd accuse other people of, uh, of taking them. And her husband eventually got overwhelmed with her difficulties, brought her to the doctor. The doctor said, you know, you have to bring your wife to this asylum in Frankfurt. And so he goes home, he packs her bags, he drops her off, and she literally she doesn't leave there alive. Um, and Alzheimer meets her the next day, and he starts realizing she has this really unusual form of memory loss, where essentially if he shows her a bunch of items, she can name the items, but then a few minutes later, she has no idea that anyone has shown her anything. Uh, but she can still do math. She can tell, you know, what's the color of soot or, or things like that. She understands the quality of things. And eventually he, uh, Alzheimer's sort of calls dibs on her brain. So he moves on to another uh, place where he works in Munich, but everyone knows that when this woman dies, her brain's supposed to go to his laboratory. And she eventually passes away in 1906. They send the brain, the, this intern calls up Alzheimer's and says, you know, do you want the brain? And he says, send it over. So they send over her brain and her medical record. And he looks at her brain under a microscope and he sees these two structures. Inside of neurons, he notices these sort of spaghetti-like structures that we now call tangles. And outside of neurons, he notices these patches that look almost like a, a spray-painted spot. And we now call those plaques. And the plaques we know now are made of a protein called amyloid, and the tangles are made of a protein called tau. And that's what Alzheimer's disease is. It basically just means there's accumulation of 
amyloid proteins and tau proteins. That's what defines it. And so when you think about dementia and Alzheimer's disease, dementia is how is someone functioning in the real world in Alzheimer's disease is what's going on in the person's brain under a microscope. And they're not always the same thing. So 60 to 70% of cases of dementia are caused by Alzheimer's disease, but someone can have dementia that's not caused by Alzheimer's disease. So maybe that they have difficulty in the real world, but under a microscope in their brain, there's no excess or there's no aggregates of amyloid and tau. Instead, you see buildup of a different protein, a protein called you know, TDP43 is another protein or um, uh, alpha-synuclein is another protein that can build up and cause dementia. So there are all these different kinds. And the other way that's kind of the, the more wild uh, phenomenon is that we now have the technology to see to um, pick up Alzheimer's disease, to pick up amyloid and tau proteins in people who are actually cognitively normal. So there wow. are people walking around who have elevated levels of amyloid, elevated levels even of tau, but when you test them, they're essentially normal. Right. And so they're actually, you can have dementia with Alzheimer's disease, but you can also have dementia without Alzheimer's disease and you can have Alzheimer's disease without dementia. Yeah. And one of the wildest things that I see in my patients, and I still, to me, it's like still flabbergasting. So if you have chronic depression and anxiety, you can actually develop something called pseudo dementia. Oh my God, man. And so I don't know if you've ever like known anybody with pseudo dementia. So, but so these are people who neurologically test apps like through the roof. So they're fine, right? Good. They're pretty much in good health. So there's their neurologist will say, yeah, you should probably go see either a psychologist or a psychiatrist. And so, yeah. And then they'll present, you know, with depression and anxiety and they have pseudo dementia like legit so they have so the clients that i have that have pseudo dementia legitimately it mimics almost exactly except for the fact that they could perform day-to-day -day uh, functions but like literally you'll have a conversation with them five minutes later they'll be like oh what did you just say to me i totally forgot wow yeah yeah so it's, it's so interesting amazing. right yeah and we see that often yeah what are your thoughts on pseudo dementia just curious we see it often i have to say i'm always amazed at how um dramatic it can be and how much improvement people can have um, but a lot of it is people who, um, sometimes they're aware of the anxiety or aware of the depression and sometimes they're not, sometimes it's sort of, they don't realize actually that they've been terribly depressed for a long time and they, they only really see the memory symptoms. And it's not until we talk to them and, and actually oftentimes drudge up something from the past that they've been sort of blocking and not thinking about that. You realize that actually that's, what's causing them to have memory difficulties. It could be really difficult to untangle though. Uh, because a lot of the causes of dementia, we don't really have ways to prove that they exist or don't exist. And um, so it can be really difficult to untangle. And sometimes you can have both. You can have people who, you know, have Alzheimer's disease, but they would be functioning really well if not for all the anxiety or all the depression. And right. so even though they have Alzheimer's disease and they don't, you know, they, they have some dementia, they don't go 100% back to normal. They actually improve when you treat their anxiety, you treat their depression. Wow. So wait, and then in terms of the actual memories, so in, when you're talking about treatment, you're saying that when they actually discuss some of these sort of suppressed memories that somehow or other within a short amount of time, it's like their memory in general just improves. Sometimes, yeah. Sometimes people mm -hmm. have these, they have a traumatic experience in the past. They haven't processed it. Um, and as they get older, you know, something happens, it triggers something and, you know, they start having memory problems. 
And when we go back and actually talk to them about their childhood or, or something that happened in the past that they hadn't really talked about before, um, it, it turns out actually they've been repressing something and something hasn't been processed. And they end up seeing you know, folks like you, they see a psychiatrist, they see a psychologist and, um, and, and their memory gets better. Wow. It's like, so yeah, go ahead. Oh, sorry. I was saying it actually is a pretty dramatic moment for some people because some of the people we see, they've been walking around with a diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease. And now they're oh. suddenly told, actually, you don't have a neurodegenerative condition. And it can really be uh, a extraordinarily difficult transition, actually, to go back to thinking that you don't have that, you don't have Alzheimer's disease. Wow. So it's sort of, what did you, there is a, a case, I believe, of, a, of an outlier in the book, uh, I believe a 70 year old woman who, um, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm a little hazy on the details, but who presented with those proteins uh, uh, for, um, you know, somebody who might have Alzheimer's, but she had something else going on that, yeah, sorry, could, could you elaborate yeah, exactly. on Yeah, exactly. So this is sort yeah. of a wild story. So yeah. in the book, I talk about um, yeah, an unusual population in Colombia where there are these families where there's an enormous number of people in the, in, the, in the family who have early onset Alzheimer's disease. And it's because they carry a mutation that causes the disease. So most cases of Alzheimer's disease, there's not a single gene that I can point to that's causing their condition, but that's not true for these families. Uh, and they tend to get disease in their 30s, 40s, early 50s. So it's really this, it, it's just uh, horrible from generation to generation. They've lost tons of people to, to early onset Alzheimer's disease. And now that we know the gene that causes the condition, you can actually look at these people's uh, genetics and you could figure out whether they're going to develop early onset Alzheimer's disease or not, even before they have symptoms. You can sequence this gene and you say, okay, you're going to get this disease. You're not going to get this disease. And you're essentially, you're almost always right. But the researchers actually found a exception. And so there was a woman who had the gene that causes Alzheimer's disease, but she actually never really, she never started to have memory symptoms. Her, her mind was, was sharp and no one could figure out what was going on. And it turns out um, she had this unusual second mutation that actually uh, prevented her from building up a pro the protein tau. So her brain actually accumulated lots and lots of amyloid, but she never got tau and she never got memory loss. And she actually died from a, a non-cognitive uh, syndrome at the end um, from, I think it was melanoma. And, um, but she was in her seventies and, uh, and never had memory loss, even though she had this gene that otherwise, and basically everyone else that we know causes early onset Alzheimer's disease. And so people actually, uh, her family actually donated her brain to research. And there are people now who are studying her brain to try to figure out how did she, you know, how did she manage to escape? And can we use that to design drugs for other people? Yeah. And, um, I know you were going to ask another no, no, question, but neither. Uh, this is a little bit of a tangent in a way, but related. Um, are you aware of uh, Elon Musk's, um, he wants to uh, create something called Neuralink, supposedly be this little uh, chip, somebody uh, he would put into, I'm not sure if it's into the brain, but rather it would stimulate the hippocampal region in order to uh, stimulate that area and allow for you know people with Alzheimer's to maybe regain some of their uh, like uh, function as far as memory goes. Uh, do, do you know a bit about that? It's very yeah, interesting. So it's like, I know yeah. literally nothing. I know that he does the Neuralink stuff, but I actually have no idea. It feels a bit like a black box. I have no idea what actually goes on there or what they're doing. I've never gone to, uh, I've never actually read much about it. 
That's fair. Yeah, so it, it seems cool. <laughs> I guess then we'll just leave it at that. I, I think it'd be cool to see how that develops, I suppose, in the future. Mm -hmm. But yeah, they, they want to make that like as another uh, form of treatment maybe for Alzheimer's. I, I'm aware there's a, a new drug that's available too, I believe. Uh, yeah, so that's it's yeah. a controversial topic. Yeah, but, yeah. but basically, so um, we know that amyloid builds up about 10 or 15 years before tau. And for that reason, and for a bunch of other reasons, a lot of people have thought for a long time that if we could get rid of amyloid, then we could essentially cure Alzheimer's disease or slow Alzheimer's disease. And so we've spent just huge amounts of money developing drugs that clean up amyloid. And for the most part, none of them have worked. Mm -hmm. um, but there's a drug called aducanumab that's made by a company called Biogen. And it seems to be more powerful than all the drugs that came before it. We actually now have drugs that are more powerful than that, but it was the most powerful at the time. And we had good reason to believe that it covered, that it does clean up amyloid. So if you uh, take a picture of someone's brain and you look at where the amyloid is, and then you give them this drug, and then you take the picture again, they have less amyloid. It seems to work. And the question is, does it actually change the clinical outcomes? Does it really help people with Alzheimer's disease? And the company essentially, they uh, did these, two giant phase three trials at once, each of them with more than a thousand people. And they did this midterm evaluation and they decided the drug has failed, we're gonna stop the trial. But it's a big trial, so it takes a few months for it to sort of eke to a stop. So they get about three months more of data. And then they go back and analyze it. One of the trials, the drug really didn't do anything. In the other trial, when they filtered out who they were looking at and they said, you know, we're gonna toss out the people who we thought are sort of fast progressors that we couldn't have helped anyways. And then we only look at people who were on a super high dose of the drug. When we filter things that way, then maybe there's a little bit of a single signal that people got better. And so normally that would be something that you would use to sort of generate a new hypothesis and do another right. trial. Right. Instead, what the company did is they went to the FDA and said, you know, can we have approval for this drug? <laughs> and the FDA approved it based on, it was really a shock to all of us that it got approved. Um, right, it's cherry pick data at this point. It was, yeah, it was sort of, yeah. it, it was striking and there's a lot of investigations into it now. Um, but they approved it not in the way of saying this drug definitely works, but they basically said, you know, this is an important disease. We don't have any other cures. And in theory, cleaning up amyloid should work. So it really was like based on the idea that this should work more than based on the evidence that this definitely works. And so, you know, their stock went sky high and um, there was all this fear because the drug was like 50 some thousand dollars a year. Theoretically, you're going to have to keep giving this to people with Alzheimer's disease for their whole life. So who knows how, you know, how much this is going to cost. And ultimately, people really are not prescribing it. I can tell you at Penn, no one has, as far as I know, you know, no one has prescribed this medication and because ultimately we don't really know that it works. We're not sure that it doesn't work, but we just don't have the proof. And Medicare um, finalized the decision in April saying that they're not gonna cover it, which is very unusual. Um, normally if something is approved by the FDA, Medicare will cover it. Um, but in this case, they basically said, we're only gonna cover it in research trials. Yeah, so it's basically almost, we've sort of now practically almost gone back to reversing the, the FDA decision from a, from a practical standpoint, it's sort of as if it's not approved, um, even though technically it is. Um, but that's sort of the story. It's been this really 
dramatic uh, unfolding saga in cognitive neurology. And actually the, the um, FDA panels for the drug, uh, several people resigned. And at the, the uh, there was the Academy, uh, American Academy of Neurology meeting in Seattle a few weeks ago. One of the people who resigned actually gave a big talk talking about why he, he left. Oh, wow. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that? What did he say? He basically said he felt like his values were no longer in line with the FDA. Uh, after after seeing what they did. Wow. Reminiscent of Theranos and Elizabeth Holmes. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. I've been watching that show. I, uh, I can't, I, I, yeah, I'm obsessed with that story. Yeah, I, know. I, 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 I binged it in like, I think maybe four or five days. What'd you think of it? I love the show. I, I, uh, I couldn't, couldn't stop watching. Although when I talk to people who are sort of in the startup world and in the sort of medical device world, some of them talk about that they, you know, they could sort of see how it happened. Um, and that it wasn't the sort of saying, I was sort of surprised they were like, you know, of course you want to keep the investors separate from the scientists because nothing ever is working exactly the way that you're saying it, that, you know, the investors are always sort of once they're thinking that things are a step ahead or farther than they are. Um, and that it's sort of a slippery slope from that to basically outright deception and lying. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I, oh my gosh, I, I couldn't get enough of the show. Right, because in this case, I think she was 10 steps ahead of where she told you. I'm sorry, she's 10 steps behind wherever she told the investors she were. And it was like, it was ridiculous because in the show, I'm sure this happened in reality too, but she just kept saying like, oh, we're just going to decide it. Like, it doesn't really matter at this point. It's just going to happen, right? Like, oh, okay, that's how it works. <laughs> we're just going to make it. Like, you know, they should just hang on. Yeah, it's so funny. It's like, you know, this is a great idea and it exists. And so I'm going to work on marketing it, but missing that first piece of it existing. Right, which is like legit the most important part. <laughs> <laughs> so Sarah, can you take us like back to how you developed the book? Because obviously, like I said in the beginning, super interesting that you interwove medical history with these particular case studies. Like, and of course, within the question I want to ask, I'm assuming you were, but I think it's still worth asking. Uh, were you inspired by Oliver Sacks to do that? And how did you come up with the concept? It's a great question. He, Oliver Sacks clearly basically created the field of narrative neurology. Right. Yeah, so he's the one who taught us how to tell these stories. And I think he's the one who made people think that this was a interesting and accessible thing to, to read about. Um, initially, I wanted to sort of go that route of just, just telling patient stories. But then ultimately, you know, my idea was initially, you know, tell the patient story and then explain the disease. But in explaining the disease, I realized it's actually a lot easier to explain what's going on if you go back to the history of the disease and how it was discovered. Because um, I think for all of us, normally you go to the doctor and you get diagnosed with whatever, and you have this idea that that diagnosis always existed. But actually, you know, someone had to discover that diagnosis. There was some proof, there was probably some argument, and then eventually, you know, now we know that hypothyroid exists or, um, you know, breast cancer. All of these things have a history and it's actually easier to understand your own diseases if you understand where they come from. And so the book sort of evolved into the combination yeah, that, that it now has of chapters that are both the story of a patient and then also the, the history of the disease. And I think part of it also was the, you know, you could tell someone the facts about their disease and that's a little bit dry and boring. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a reason most of us don't understand our own conditions. Right. Uh, but if you tell someone the history of the disease and it's in a narrative form, um, then it's a lot more interesting because it's actually just other, about other people. Um, and so I realized that actually telling the story of the disease would be more interesting to readers than just explaining the disease. 
Um, so that that's how that part sort of um, evolved. And the more I looked into the history, mm. I have to say, I mean, I did neurology residency and I never knew any of this stuff. Um, wow. So um, it was just this wild history. I, I'm so glad I learned it. And in my own clinic now, you know, when I see patients, when I diagnose them with Alzheimer's disease, I tell them the story of Dr. Alzheimer. Um, so it's actually changed the way that I practice. Wow, I love that. Yeah, and I remember when I was in graduate school, like all of us were obsessed with case studies, but we actually hated like uh, the Oxford textbook of uh, mental pathology. Oh my God, I hated I'm sure you guys had some version of that at school too. We all hated that. But like when it came to the actual books on case studies, like you would devour them in literally a couple of hours. Yeah, it's totally. It's, I think there's this idea that if you if you just tell someone facts, you can pack more information in and so it should be more efficient. But I think in reality, when there's narrative, we learn things so much better that it's actually more efficient to learn that way. Yeah, absolutely. And so before we wrap up, I think it's really important, at least for me to cover, because I found this to be the most fascinating part of the book. Can you tell us a little bit, a little bit about Abraham Lincoln and how he was actually, uh, yes. yeah, how he was so different, at least in that phase of his life from kind of the public conception of him? Yeah. So and I'll say this is, this is speculation. Um, mm -hmm. But there's a, there's this uh, historian who uh, he's actually the guy who discovered oral rehydration therapy. Um, so he's a, a really well-known uh, infectious disease doctor whose his work has saved millions, millions of lives, but he also does some medical history. And he was reading Lincoln, which is actually a, a, um, a historical novel by Gore Vidal. And he reads this clip that uh, Lincoln used blue mass. And most of us have no idea what blue mass is, but this, uh, this um, infectious disease doctor knows that blue mass is actually made of mercury. And when he went back and looked, um, there's all these accounts of Lincoln essentially having erratic, really volatile behavior uh, that's very different from the Lincoln that we picture in our minds as essentially this sort of presidential, calm, statuesque type figure. And, uh, and there's actually a quote from one of Lincoln's colleagues that says that Lincoln used blue mass until he became president and a little bit after, and then he stopped because he realized it made him cross. And there's this idea that maybe actually he was using blue mass and he was getting mercury toxicity, behaving really erratically. And then he realizes that he has this insight and then he stops taking it. Um, and it, it, the implications are kind of, are, are far reaching uh, to say that one of the most sort of respective presidents in U.S. history was potentially lost to a medication side effects and makes us really think about what medications do we take and what is it actually doing and do we really, do we really know all the side effects of the medications that we're taking? Right. And what was so interesting is that people actually found it comical that he became violent. Yeah, there was a great uh, in the um, the Lincoln Douglas debates debates. He's um, he's on stage and he basically someone accuses him of not supporting the troops and he gets really angry about this and he looks at the, the podium and uh, at the dais and he sees this person up there who had worked with him in congress before who's actually a douglas supporter and he tells this guy you know you should tell the audience that i supported the troops and before the guy can answer lincoln basically grabs him by the neck um, drags him to the front of the stage almost chokes him to death and his lincoln's bodyguard actually has to essentially pull him back uh, and prevent him from killing this person in front of the audience. And there's sort of silence. And then the audience actually thinks it's hilarious. And they sort of think that it's <laughs> a pre-planned stunt. And the debate goes on. Yeah. And I would wonder at that time, did anybody think that there was something amiss about him? Or was it just like, yeah, business as usual? Yeah, it's so funny. I, 
who knows? And lots of people were using mercury at the time and, and nobody really had any idea what it was doing. Yeah. Amazing. It may have been just so out of character. That's why they thought it was comical. Mm-hmm. Maybe right? <laughs> it's such a switch in personality that yeah, but and you know, but I would wonder at that moment, wouldn't somebody say, "Hey, man, maybe somebody should get him some sort of medical evaluation." <laughs> I, mean, I don't know, especially, especially because it was such an extreme, right? Usually, you wouldn't see something like that. I mean, unless you know, diagnostically, if the person has like bipolar disorder or something along those lines. But I, I mean, we don't really know, you know, exactly. Besides that, he was depressed. But like, I'm just surprised that nobody said, "Hey, man, maybe we should evaluate him." It's, that's, it's, that's totally fair. Just that perhaps you know, because he's in a position of authority, the people under him just don't want to even suggest. Maybe, you know, lest they get the wrath of Lincoln, you know, mm-hmm. but he changed. Right. right. Although I say, I mean, celebrities today or politicians today have some wild behavior and we sit there and we like criticize them and say, uh, you know, oh, my gosh, did you hear what this person did? But we're not really saying, oh, wow, they should go see a doctor. Um, yeah, it's so interesting. Yeah, it's sort of like normalized for some of them. <laughs> All right. So I want to read one final passage before we wrap up, which is legitimately my favorite passage in the entire book. So Sarah writes, the vast majority of clinical trials for dementia are deeply, deeply rooted in molecular data. We recruit participants not only based on their symptoms, but also according to the molecules we identify in their brains, blood, and spinal fluid. For Alzheimer's disease tri- drug trials, we often use a new type of brain scan to prove that a particular accumulate, that a, that a participant has accumulated the plaques and tangles necessary for a diagnosis of the disease. In frontotemporal dementia, many trials now require genetic testing to prove that a person carries a mutation that is likely to respond to the drug being studied. The same is true for Huntington's disease. Drug trials have conduct, drug trials conducted for the affliction now require proof that a participant carries a pathological number of CAG repeats in the Huntington's disease genes. gene. The changes reflect the developing understanding that dementia is not a single disease, but rather a symptom that can be caused by many different molecular abnormalities, each of each deserving its own tailored treatment. We are tailored treatment. We are participating. We are practicing personalized medicine more than ever before, pitting molecule against molecule as we as we look to treat horrific, horrifically common ailments of the mind. In 25 years, if all goes well, we will look back on the dark days when dementia still meant an irreversible march toward the erasure toward the erasure of the mind. We will tell the story of how we use molecular science to save hundreds of thousands of brains from wilting into non-existence and the people were rescued will be there with us recalling the tale i love that sarah oh my god thank you so much for coming on just again i love your book my favorite book of the entire year um and then alan final questions for sarah before we wrap up uh yes so if we wanted to follow you follow your work uh, buy the book uh, where where could we find you and the book oh thanks so much the um the book is is uh, available i think anywhere that that uh that you can buy books um but i've a website is saramanningpeskin.com um, and uh, you can sign up on the website and i'll just periodically let you know uh, as i publish other stuff um but uh, but that's sort of easy i actually don't have any social media but the website's saramanningpeskin.com absolutely awesome. and we'll be looking forward to your future books <laughs> Thanks so much. I really appreciate it. Thanks a lot for having me. Absolutely. Thank, Thank you. you so much for coming on. We'll talk to you soon. Mm-hmm. Talk to Take you care. soon. Bye. All right. So, first of all, that was awesome. Yeah, she's so brilliant. Awesome. Mm-hmm. And so, everyone, if you want to follow us, you can follow us at Seize the Moment Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. And at Seize underscore podcast on Twitter. Like, subscribe, hit the bell. Thank you so much for watching and see you next time.